Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome back to the McGill International Review. Leah Bustan is an economics professor at Princeton University. She's done some great work covering the effect that immigration has on the American economy. And she's recently co-authored a book titled Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. Today, I've brought her onto the podcast to discuss how well immigrant families tend to perform relative to their peers and the way geography trumps basically everything else when it comes to immigrant performance. Hope you enjoy. Leah Bustan, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Glad to be here. All right, so I'm going to start with a little bit about uh, cultural assimilation, because you've done a bit of research on how willing immigrants are to culturally assimilate. So would you mind summarizing the ways in which you measured that in your studies and what some of your findings were? Sure. Um, Yeah, some of the first work that uh, Ron and I did together um, with our co-author Catherine Erickson was on the economic outcomes and assimilation of immigrants. And then when we were talking to friends, you know, non-economists, they said, well, okay, well, so you show us that immigrants are doing well in the economy, or at least that their children are achieving um, substantial upward economic mobility. But when I think about assimilation, I think about becoming American or culturally assimilating. Um, And we wanted to find ways to study this more systematically, quantitatively. Um, And we also needed to find outcomes that we could measure both in the past and the present. Um, So if you think about what it you know, what makes someone American or what makes someone Canadian, um, it's a wide range of behaviors, attitudes, norms, aspects of daily life. And that's not all going to get picked up in the data, especially not historically. So what we ended up going with um, were a set of different outcomes. Um, First, um, who do immigrants marry? Do they marry people from um, their home country or do they marry someone from you know, maybe who was born in another country or who was born in the United States. Um, Where do they live? Do they live in neighborhoods with other immigrants um, or uh, in neighborhoods that are more integrated? Do they speak English? Uh, Which is actually, if you ask people on surveys, you know, what does it take to become American? Um, Speaking English is the most important factor that people point to. Um, And then, um, Uh, an outcome that we especially like, um, which are the names that immigrant uh, parents choose for their children. Um, So, you know, an immigrant may have a child after one or two years in the country um, and then have another child three or four years later. And so that would allow us to trace out um, how uh, some of these cultural attitudes may have changed over time. And what were some examples of your findings regarding how willing immigrants were to culturally assimilate, like how patriotic they tended to be, for example? Well, what's really fascinating to us is that um, the pace of cultural assimilation um, has been very steady over the past hundred years. I think that we have this impression in the United States, I don't know about Canada, that immigrants a hundred years ago from Europe um, assimilated very quickly. 
Um, I suppose both because they were coming from countries that were more similar to the existing U.S. born population. Um, so you might think, well, if the existing population is from England and the newcomers are from Germany, it's not as different as maybe today uh, where some of the newcomers are coming uh, from Latin America and Asia. Um, and also uh, there was um, some government policy 100 years ago, but also um, very much a strong cultural norm that immigrants should assimilate and that the government should even take action, maybe through the schools, to try to facilitate assimilation. And these days, there's much more of a hands-off attitude, uh, more acceptance of um, uh a sort of cultural difference. So um, I guess I went into our project thinking, well, maybe we would find, you know, really rapid uh, cultural assimilation 100 years ago and slower cultural assimilation today. But that's not what we find. We actually find that immigrants assimilate at a very similar pace uh, today uh, than in the past. Um, and pretty um, consistently across different immigrant groups as well. Um, you know, if you think about the groups that politicians might point to um, as saying, oh, these are uh, groups that um, don't make efforts to assimilate, like it might be Mexicans today, or it could be Italians in the past, that sort of thing. Um, we find that these groups actually, um, you know, make great efforts to assimilate. Yeah. And regarding like the whole cultural expectation that's always been here for immigrants to assimilate, you wrote something, you did an AMA on Reddit uh, a while back where you wrote something that I found kind of fascinating. So I'm going to quote it right now. It can sometimes backfire to try to force or help people assimilate. For example, before World War I, many German immigrants in the Midwest lived in German-speaking enclaves and their children attending German-speaking schools. When some of these states tried to outlaw educating children in German, German immigrants in those states reacted by doubling down on their identity, sending their children to church schools, choos choosing German names for their kids, etc. So, like, how do you interpret this? Do you think when it comes to a desire to ingratiate yourself into Western culture that it feels a lot more rewarding to see yourself as American when there aren't like cultural expectations that try to force it onto yourself? Or do you think it's mostly just like backlash to governmental policy itself? Well, so this was work that was done by Vicky Fuca, who is in political science at Stanford, um, one of my co-author Ron's colleagues at Stanford. Um, and, um, and her work is really fascinating. It's exactly as you describe, um, Andrew, from the quote from Reddit. Um, and so, uh, you know, as to how, why does this happen? Um, I can only speculate, but it seems like um, there are two groups identities in people's mind. You know, there's the ethnic group that they um, moved to the United States with, and then there is the broader American um, identity that they might be seeking to join. Um, if uh, an immigrant group feels under threat, for whatever reason, they might be facing discrimination, um, they might be facing, uh, in this case, um, government action to try to suppress their identity, um, then that group might double down on or retrench back to their original ethnic identity and feel um, more um, support, comfort, and safety uh, by um, trying to retain their original ethnic identity. So I find this study very instructive about moving forward on assimilation policy 
Um, now, the policies that Vicky was analyzing are, are, are relatively extreme, um, and they may not um, have a direct analog to policies today. Um, but there is a lot of debate going on right now about whether the government should get involved in encouraging assimilation. Um, and I think that this study um, is an important corrective for people to keep in mind that if you push a, a group um, hard enough, uh, then you might end up getting counterproductive results uh, because rather than kind of forcing, okay, well, I'm getting pushed, so I'll just sort of become American as, as the government is trying to get me to do, um, you might end up um, encouraging a group to sort of become more insular, to depend more on itself, um, to sort of retrench um, into the community for safety. All right. Um, so I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about how one of the core tenets of your book is that we often tend to romanticize how well like European immigrants from a hundred years ago tended to perform on average in part due to like sampling bias and in part due to like misconceptions surrounding what the immigrant experience was like back then. So would you mind walking the audience through how this might reinforce certain misconceptions about immigrants to the U.S. in today's time period? Yeah, I mean, this was really an interesting um, exercise that we went through with our um, empirical work and our data. Um, so, um, you know, we have this impression in the United States that uh, immigrants 100 years ago from Europe um, moved up the ladder economically uh, very quickly. And some of that does come from stories that families tell um, or the way that the story of the immigrant experience might be taught in high school um, and what politicians say and that kind of thing. But some of it actually was reinforced by academic studies. And those studies were conducted in the 70s or in the 80s uh, before we had the opportunity to really follow um, individual immigrants over time um, in data sets that would have a panel structure where you can follow an individual. Um, and because we didn't have data like that, um, what academics needed to do was sort of use the data that was available at hand, even if they knew that there were some sorts of biases um, in the data. Um, and so what did they do? Well, they did have access to uh, data sets from single time periods. Like, let's say you had data from the 1910 census, and that's all you had. Um, in that case, um, you would maybe look at immigrants who were recent arrivals, like someone who came in 1909, 1908, and compare their outcomes to an immigrant who was a longstanding immigrant who had been in the country for 30 years, like someone who arrived in 1880. And you might see that the longstanding immigrant was doing a lot better. And so you sort of um, could maybe infer, well, as time goes on and immigrants spend more time in the country, uh, they end up improving their economic lot. Uh, the problem is that immigrants who arrived in the U.S. in 1880 are very different from immigrants who arrived in 1909. They came from different countries of origin. Um, they were more likely to come from England or Germany and less likely to come from Italy or Poland, that sort of thing. Um, and there are other important differences as well, even within country of origin. So um, you end up kind of comparing apples and oranges that way. Um, and the impression that you get from that kind of, a, of an exercise is, wow, immigrants were really successful at moving up the ladder in the past. And maybe today they're less successful because, you know, we end up having higher quality data for the modern period. 
Um, and so we can solve some of those biases in the modern data sets and not as easily in the historical data sets. And that kind of um, comparison across studies ended up reinforcing uh, this myth of um, very successful immigrants from Europe and less successful immigrants today from the rest of the world. So when it comes to the sort of idea about how well they performed, how much of you, how much of like the popular sort of notion about how well they performed, how much of that do you think comes from the sampling bias in those studies themselves? And how much of it do you think comes from like misleading anecdotal experiences? Like um, in your interview with Matt Iglesias, Matt made an interesting point about how a lot of these, a lot of the time, these first generation immigrants, they might not do that well compared to like the median American, but like they still might do really well compared to like how well they would have done in their home country. And maybe like anecdotally, if you were to talk to them and like see like how well they're doing, like from their own perception of things, do you think that might also like feed into like misconceptions about how well they're doing compared to the median American? Well, there's really two different parts of the, the question that you asked. I mean, um, the first part is, is about um, how much of our misperception of the past comes from the data and the studies versus anecdotes. And I, I think that they do reinforce each other. Um, probably uh, if the anecdotes had really mismatched with the data in 1970 or 1980, um, people would have taken a harder look at those anecdotes and uh, questioned them. But because the data matched so well with the stories that were being told, you know, that just encourages further reliance on the, the stories and our very hazy and sort of romanticized vision of the past. Um, so it could be a story that you read or a movie that you see, um, or it could be something that you hear from your own grandparents um, and in your own family stories. Um, the second part of your question is a little bit different. It's about, um, you know, really what comparison should we be drawing? Should we be comparing immigrants um, to the U.S. born or should we be comparing immigrants to what their life would have looked like if they had stayed home and remained in their home country? And those are really two very different questions, but two important questions. Um, you know, they're both equally valid um, and just a question of what you care about. Um, I think that for American politicians, uh, they really don't care very much at all about the second question, which is like, are immigrants better off living in the US than they would, would have been if they were living in Mexico or if they were living in China or India? Maybe they care only to the extent that immigrants who do well by moving to the country are very grateful. As you said, they tend to be more patriotic. Maybe they're going to become politically involved because they um, end up you know, having a lot of gratitude for a country that um, offered them upward mobility. But other than that, I don't think um, American politicians really care that much about um, whether immigrants are doing better here um, relative to how they would have been doing if they stayed home, uh, they care more about um, whether there are persistent earning gaps or cultural gaps between immigrants and the U.S. born here in the United States. 
Um, so if immigrants are earning a lot less than the U.S. born um, and then kind of remaining there, like if they're treading water, if they're not moving up uh, the economic ladder over the course of their own lifetime or in their children's lifetime, then there's a sense of immigrants remaining kind of a permanent underclass and a lot of worries. Are we going to have to support this group um, with um, uh, you know, social programs and transfers um, and, you know, are are we going to have to um, spend a lot of money on like remedial education or um, English as a second language and those kinds of fiscal issues come um, come up um, on the in contrast if, if immigrants do very well um, and their kids end up doing very well and become Americans quickly you know then there are less worries about um, whether we need to um, engage in financial support yeah. But you do bring up a great point, especially in your book, about how a lot of the time, not only do second generation immigrants to the U.S. do better than their parents, but they would also do better than like the children of U.S. born people within like the same earning percentile, like the same approximate income percentile. So would you mind like walking through the way that geographical advantages play a large role in that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, we were especially interested in the children of immigrants because, first of all, immigrants themselves say that that's their reason for moving to the U.S. Even if they don't earn very much themselves in their own lifetime, they want to move to the country in order to provide a better um, a better life for their children. Um, and um, so we were able to gather information on um, immigrant fathers and sons historically using um, our linked census data. And we're also able to compare immigrant fathers with both their sons and daughters in the modern data. Um, and uh, immigrant families uh, do on average tend to be poorer than U.S. born families. And so in order again to compare apples to apples, we wanted to look at families that um, are situated in the same part of the income distribution when the, when the kids are young. Um, so we would compare people um, at the 25th percentile or at the 35th or at the 45th percentile, regardless of where in the income distribution you're looking, we would want to compare an immigrant family and a U.S. born family who are at the same place and see what happens to their kids. Um, and as you were alluding to, Andrew, what we find both in the past and today is that um, the children of the immigrant uh, parents are moving up the income distribution faster. Um, so they're achieving more social mobility than the children um, of the U.S. born parents. This was true 100 years ago. It's true now. And it's true almost entirely across the board, regardless of the country of origin of the parents. A little caveat to that is that when you say the children of immigrants are doing better than children of U.S. born, um, well, how much better? You know, um, are we talking about just uh, squeezing a little bit past? Um, like, think about a horse race, and they say a horse, you know, who wins by by a nose, um, or are we talking about being way out ahead of the field? Um, and that really does depend on the country of origin of the parents. Um, so um, we do have a, quite a lot of difference. Um, for children of um, immigrants from Asia, immigrants from Latin America, 
in immigrants from Central America and, and from Europe. Uh, but all of those groups um, are uh, achieving more upward mobility than children of U.S. born. And then you asked about why, you know, what is it about uh, immigrants? You know, is there some sort of special advantage? You know, they work harder, they care more about education. You know, what is it? And it turns out that a lot of what's going on, especially historically, but also today, is um, about location. So immigrants tend to locate in the most dynamic labor markets, which historically meant avoiding the U.S. South, which was a very agricultural region and a region without very much upward mobility for anyone. Um, also, um, moving um, within the North or the West to um, the most um, economically prosperous and dynamic cities. Okay. So you mentioned one thing in your interview with Maddie Glazius that I found really interesting, which is that like, if you were to look at how well second-generation immigrants were to like how well educated they were to be compared to like someone within the same income percentile who was like the the children of someone in the US born with like controlling for the same factors they often tend to have like less education than children of the US born so is it the sort of thing where like being willing to move around helps so much that it's willing to compensate for even like minor differences in how well educated you might be that is exactly right. But I want to just caveat that um, we were only able to look at that issue in the past. So historically, we have all of the micro data and we can look at where someone's living, but also their education and their occupation and everything. Um, in the modern data, we have been using some aggregate data from the Opportunity Insights Lab at Harvard. And originally that data came from the IRS. It's from the tax records. So it's very proprietary and we do not have the micro data to look at questions like that. Um, someone inside Opportunity Insights could do, but we can't. Um, so what we find historically is exactly the pattern that you describe. It's really interesting that if you're looking at, again, the kids who are raised at the same income level in childhood, um, but have parents who are immigrants versus U.S. born, um, the children of immigrants actually have less education, but they earn more. And so one of the reasons why they earn more um, is, a, a, and a big reason is because of the geography that they're in the more dynamic locations. Those locations um, also had um, slightly lower education levels for kids because there were so many good work opportunities, um, so many manufacturing jobs, um, industrial factory jobs where you may not need to finish high school. Um, and so what these kids ended up, you know, having, let's say half a year less of school, but um, higher earnings because they sort of immediately went to work and found um, good positions. Yeah. So it's like they tended to be more of like having their finger on the pulse about like, how much education do I need? And like, how do I maximize my time out of this and then find the best opportunities possible right after? Yeah. And I don't know whether the same thing is going on today. So I definitely don't want to extrapolate to today because today there's a higher return to education. So the, you know, one of the main ways of getting ahead today is getting extra schooling. And that wasn't as true in um, 1940, which is our latest historical uh, cohort. Um, and so, I mean, when I think about uh, my own grandfather's family, you know, they're in the data set and they, there was eight kids. My grandfather was the seventh of eight. Um, he and his brother um, did go on to the professions. My grandfather was a doctor and his younger brother was a lawyer. Um, but all the older kids 
the older kids in the family, kids one through six had to go to work. You know, they had to work to help support, um, uh, their younger siblings and, um, they were in Chicago, so there were um, good opportunities for um, for jobs for them at the time. This is um, in the 1920s. Um, so that same sort of dynamic might have been going on. When you say finger on the pulse, I don't know if it was all like, I'm optimizing, I'm choosing the best education level for myself, or some of it could also be um, some sort of like family obligation, family pressure um, to help out. Um, but it turned out that it didn't really hold um, these folks back on average um, in terms of earnings because they were located in places where uh, jobs were plentiful. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's just like that, like the geographical reasons basically trump everything else when it comes to this. Yeah. Historically, they do. I mean, I, I really have never had an experience on a research project before when you're looking for mechanisms, usually you you find something that's related, but it's like, oh, this explains 10% of what's going on. So there's other, a lot of other stuff left on the table in the residual. And in this case, geography was just so important that it really did dwarf everything else. All right. So there was something interesting, both that was present in your book and also in your slow boring interview with Matt, where you guys sort of talked about the sort of disparity in terms of how African immigrants perform, both compared to like African Americans here, and also how there's a split in terms of gender. Uh, so would you mind elaborating on that a little bit? Sure. Um, so in the modern data, we're able to look at five majority black countries, um, and we have 45 countries total. So um, uh, those five countries um, have uh, somewhat important differences between them. Um, uh, one is an African country, Nigeria, um, and the other four are Caribbean countries. Um, so we have Dominican Republic, Haiti, Jamaica, and Trinidad and Tobago. I wish we knew more about African countries beyond Nigeria, but we just simply don't have um, enough um, sample size for the Opportunity Insights Lab to be able to provide us uh, data on the other African countries. So what we find is that um, for Nigeria and Dominican Republic, both the sons and daughters of immigrants from those countries are doing very well. Uh, they're outperforming the children of white US-born parents who were raised at the same income level. Um, for the other three countries, Haiti, Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago, um, we see that the daughters are doing very well and the sons are not. The sons are around equal to the children of US born. So they're the only um, immigrant groups that um, the, the, the only three uh, countries of origin um, where the kids are, are doing um, around the same or maybe a bit worse than um, children of US born. So that's very notable because it's only the sons, it's not the daughters from those three countries. And what we saw from going to some of the sociology, from the more qualitative eth ethnographic um, information is that um, it does make sense with how um, West Indian families describe their living conditions and their environment. Um, now, many of those families are... Um, in Miami, many of them are in New York, many of them are in DC. So there's very particular uh, locations where people um, are clustered and that's common. You know, immigrants do tend to cluster um, in er certain areas together. Um, and in those Caribbean neighborhoods, um, there is a lot of police presence um, and the sons of Caribbean 
uh, parents tend to be um, given a wider latitude to leave home um, at night uh, to spend time in the neighborhood um, and then possibly to have encounters with the police. Um, whereas daughters uh, tend to be uh, kept closer to home. Um, they are given tighter curfews um, and they're uh, less likely to have police encounters. So um, my sense, and I would need to test this further, and again, we're sort of hampered by how much microdata we get for the present, um, is that um, a good chunk of what we're seeing uh, is coming from incarceration rates. Um, someone who's incarcerated in our data is going to show up as having zero or very low income. Um, and so if that's taking place for, let's say, 10% of, of the, the population, and I'm making that number up, that's really going to bring down the average um, in what we're seeing for um, upward mobility. So it could be that there's sort of a bifurcation where there are some um, sons of West Indian families that are doing very well and others that are, are doing incredibly poorly, and that's bringing the average down. Um, for the daughters, we're seeing a very different pattern. So that's um, really interesting. But now I want to shift and talk sort of about like public opinion on immigration, because you've done a little bit of research about how like Americans have sort of changed their minds on immigration over time. They've sort of gradually begun to move left more recently. But in general, when it comes to historical trends, what are some examples of like the types of major events that cause Americans to change their minds on immigration? Um, so. Uh, in order for us to look at public opinion over a very long time period, we don't have access to something like Gallup polls. Um, and so what we did is we turned to the congressional record where politicians were making speeches about immigration over the past 150 years. Um, and, uh, you know, we needed to go through millions of speeches to find uh, the 200,000 or so speeches that are related to immigration policy. Um, and we're able to classify those as either pro or anti-immigration. Um, and what we see was really, it was quite stunning. Um, first of all, um, there was a period from around 1880 until 1945 um, where the vast majority of speeches about immigration were negative. Um, if you're counting negative or neutral, somewhere north of 85% of speeches about immigration were negative back then. Um, and that's true across party. There wasn't really a partisan divide there. And it's also like very, very steady over time. Um, even leading up to closing the border in the 1920s, there isn't like some kind of groundswell of negative opinion. It's just a steady drumbeat of very negative attitudes towards immigrants. Um, and then, you know, 1945, that's a year that probably rings a lot of bells for people, the end of World War II and um, beginning of the Cold War um, in 46, 47. Um, and so in the 15 years after that um, really you know, momentous period in history, um, we see attitudes towards immigration shifting uh, very rapidly over those 15, year, uh, those 15 years from, from resoundingly negative to um, much more positive. Um, and again, for both parties. Um, so I think that there's really a Cold War story here. Um, I, 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 I grant that a time series, you know, is not enough to necessarily nail that, but it seems like um, from what we read from um, the presidential history from that time period, especially President Truman was very worried about anti-American propaganda coming out from the USSR, pointing to um, both uh, Jim Crow laws in the South, um, so racist and segregation laws, um, but also to immigration policy, which at the time um, was targeted at particular 
ethnic or national origin groups. And so um, he really wanted to, um, to sort of put all immigrants on equal footing, um, not necessarily to increase immigration, but just to eliminate some of the biases. Um, and eventually um, a policy like that passed in 1965. Since then, um, attitudes towards immigrants have remained pretty positive amongst Democrats and have trended more negative amongst Republicans. Um, and so the sort of partisan divide that we're now really used to, where we think of um, Democrats as being the pro-immigration party and Republicans being the anti-immigration party, uh, that's a relatively recent phenomenon and it's been widening over time. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is explainable to people like Donald Trump, who would sort of escalate uh, fear mongering surrounding immigration that wasn't really present to as large of an extent before. Um, well, that's but- true. But, you know, his party was trending more anti-immigration far before Trump um, ran for office. Um, what's special about Trump, you're absolutely right, is that he is the first president to be um, very resoundingly anti-immigration. Um now, people may ask about what about like Woodrow Wilson? So there's other presidents who've been known for being anti-immigration. Um, yes, uh, they have. there have been, but during those periods, Congress was too. Um, so since Congress has become um, far more positive, let's say starting in the for- late 40s and 50s, um, Trump is the first modern president to be um, very notably anti-immigration um, in his speeches. Yeah, but you mentioned, you brought up an interesting point that like there is, even when we're, when Republicans are anti-immigration, when it comes to countries like Mexico, there is still widespread agreement towards like opening up immigration from like European countries that um, we talked about, like the ones that have those sorts of misconceptions from a hundred years ago. So where do you think the median opinion on immigration is at when it comes to other countries, like um, at the African countries that you studied or like the Asian countries where the families who go to the U.S. tend to perform, their children tend to perform extremely well, controlling for other factors? Well, we can look at these time series um, for specific groups, not for every single group, because some groups are small and they are not mentioned very often on the floor of Congress. But for Mexicans, for Chinese, um, for Germans, you know, for some very large groups, we can follow um, opinion going back to 1880 and forward to today. Um, And um, Certainly, you're right. Like the speeches that all that mention both immigration and specifically Mexican immigrants um, are more negative than speeches that mention Europeans or Asians, and um, those groups um, are uh, disproportionately um, re- responsible for the, the the positive turn that we've seen recently. So when we say that attitudes towards immigration in our congressional record data set are positive these days. Um, That's true on average, but there are important differences across country of origin. If there are important differences across country of origin, do you think it would be feasible to pass legislation that sort of reduces immigration quotas from those countries specifically? Well, I don't think there's going to be any appetite for going back to the idea of national origin quotas, um, which is what we had uh, from 1921 to 1965. um, And that was exactly what President Truman wanted to um, eliminate. Uh, So I don't think we could 
do anything like that. But I think that sort of through the back door, any policy that prioritizes high-skilled immigrants is going to disproportionately provide slots for Europeans and uh, and, and Asians, um, and not entirely um, by any means, but um, it would certainly have that kind of disparate impact. And I do think that there's more agreement about high-skilled immigration um, than there is uh, about low-skilled immigration. Um, and that's not from work I've done, but from Jens Heinmuller at Stanford and uh, co-authors. Uh, they've done surveys where they can really isolate um, the skill component versus the, the national origin component. And it doesn't seem like people particularly care about national origin when they really care most about skill. So if we're talking about a Mexican doctor, um, or an Indian doctor, that's sort of treated the same way in people's minds, at least according to this survey. Um, so I do think that there would be appetite for um, opening up some high-skilled slots. Um, what's been happening lately, though, is that um, Democratic Party has been bundling immigration policies. It, we don't want to just pass you know, a policy that opens up high-skilled slots, or we don't want to just um, legalize uh, DREAMers. Because if we do, then that those are the sympathetic groups and that's going to leave everyone else out in the cold. So if we're going to do immigration policy, we're going to do comprehensive immigration policy where we put um, the groups together. Um, and as a result, we really had no action on anything. Um, and so I don't know if that is a policy um, tactic that might get you know looked at or changed over time, but that's where we're at now. Yeah, so it's like... Um... In, Democrats are basically saying like they're not willing to just deal with the low hanging fruit. They want to like relax everything and like all of these places all at once. That was the idea as of like 2013, the last attempt to pass comprehensive immigration reform is like we're not going to pick out um, cherry pick but we're going to try to do, do a, a comprehensive plan. At the time there was bipartisan support and the plan passed in the Senate um, but it failed in the House. Um, and since then, there hasn't really been much action. Um, so, of course, what happened between 2013 and today? Well, 2015 is when the um, Trump campaign began. So um, eventually, immigration policy became much more defensive, you know, trying to defend during the Trump administration or unwind. Now, during the Biden administration, some of the policies that were enacted um, it, from 2017 uh, to 2020. All right. Final question. What are some important like questions about immigration that you wanted to learn the answers to when you first started researching this topic that like you still don't have a definitive answer to because of a lack of trustworthy data on the issue? Well, lately, Ron and I have been working with some co-authors on um, a very long run time series of immigrants and crime or incarceration. Um, we haven't really had access to consistent data there. We have really interesting bits and pieces historically and today. Um, so we've been working on that because I think that's something that's very much on people's minds. Um, when you know Trump's first uh, famous speech, um, Mexicans bring drugs, they bring crime. That's what he focused on. He didn't focus on... Um, the economic um, conditions or even immigrants, you know, stealing jobs, quote unquote, but really this idea that um, immigrants are coming from uh, unstable countries and bringing some of that instability with them. Um, so we're working on that right now. Um, and there's always 
there's always a new frontiers, you know, so new questions to ask. And so we um, did want to get the book out um, and have that as part of the national conversation as soon as possible, but we're continuing on with the research even after the book is done. All right, Leah Bustan, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for coming okay. on. And Great, I, I agree so with the, some of the tweets that you wrote about how New Jersey is best by revealed preference. Um, I'm also from New Jersey and I'm tired of people making fun of it for no reason. New Jersey is fabulous. It's, I mean, um, I, we just got back from a family trip to California, which we were, you know, we lived in California for many years, um, when I was at UCLA and I mean, it's a wonderful state. It's beautiful. Great. Um, but I was just so happy to, uh, come back to New Jersey where I feel like, um, I don't know, somehow like the vibe here is, I don't even know how to put it. There's something just very special about the state. So I was tweeting about New Jersey earlier, um, like, or last night uh, as well. I don't know if you saw it, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. Uh, New Jersey is very special to me too. Cool. All right, great. Well, I'm glad we have that in common. Um, well, thank you so much for having me on and um, I need to run away now, but um, I appreciate it. All right, see you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.